You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Quarterly. Hello and welcome to this episode of the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. Today, we're revisiting the topic of cognitive bias, the wholly irrational but largely predictable patterns of thinking that get in the way of good decisions. This episode is actually a best of. We're bringing you some highlights from our Inside the Strategy Room podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. Providing the insights today are McKinsey partner Tim Kohler and also Dan Lovallo, a former McKinsey consultant and professor of strategy at the University of Sydney. Asking the questions is Inside the Strategy Room podcast host, Sean Brown. To lead off, here's Dan Lovallo talking about how to overcome the biases inherent in what's known as the inside view. Quite a while ago, uh, I think about 1993, Daniel Kahneman and I came up with the term the inside view and the outside view to explain uh, different modes of thinking. The inside view is the way people usually think about decisions. So in other words, they start on the problem and they build the case. Oftentimes in business, the case starts with an Excel spreadsheet and you start putting in numbers and things like this. And they look into a crystal ball and try to see the future, right? And plan that future out in advance. Uh, And that's the natural way to think. But another way to do it is to use lots and lots of analogies Mm -hmm. or cases. And when you use these cases, uh, you take a more statistical view. I can tell a story about the movie industry. So I thought I was going to get rich. That's the important, that's the importance <laughs> of this that. story. Um, so I did a study along with Colin Kammer, and what we were able to do was forecast movies, their domestic box office, based on simply a poster and, you know, a one-line thing that's a two-line thing on Metacritic. And what we got was the similarity ratings between the focal movie we were trying to predict and a reference class. The reference class was formed by genre, actors, and storyline. That's it. That's, you know, took the intersection of those, and there are more than enough movies. And when you added similarity ratings to the typical regression-type things that they use, like budget and is it an action movie, that sort of thing, our mean average residual error was 25% which is exceedingly low for something like that, based on all they needed was a poster and a paragraph about the movie. The reason I thought I was going to get rich was because I got the meeting with the, with the head of the studio, and I showed him our data and walked him through right. our data. And I said, you know, what's your error on average? And they said, uh, 100%. If you think a movie's going to make... A hundred million, it makes 50, it makes 150. We're, you know, we're just not close. So I said, well, you know, I can cut that by 75%. How about, you know, let's, work let's, let's, yeah, let's work together. And he thought for a while and said, no, I, I, don't, I don't think I can do it. And I said, well, how many analogies do you use to make forecasts? 
of movies at the beginning. And he said, well, sometimes we use one. In other words, they use almost all the inside view. And I said, what's the most you've ever used? He said, two. And so I said, well, do, do you believe what I'm doing? If, if you don't believe me that we did this beforehand, give me your next slate of movies. If I'm helpful, you pay me. If not, free. I thought, you know, right. can't, can't go wrong there. And he said, and this is where he was very honest, he said, no, it's not that. I get to pick 12 movies a year, and I'm only in this job for a few years. And I don't want evidence out there <laughs> that I should have done something different. <laughs> Very candid. And there was no money for me. <laughs> it seems that one of the key challenges there, though, is figuring out what those reference cases are. Yeah. Um, are there any specific skill sets or techniques that really help somebody who's trying to take the outside view do it effectively? It's part art and part science, right? Well, a way to think about it for those who know how to do regressions, and I'm not going to assume everyone does, but they would be the main variables in your regressions. In the case of movies, you know, it's genre, it's, it's actor, Actors. it's storyline, it's things like that. Mm -hmm. You can do it with almost anything. A lot of it will depend on the industry, and it's not something you can pull from the financial statements. But if you're in, if you're like, say, you're in the chemical industry, right? Yeah. One, you've done these things before yourself. Sure. And secondly, the chemical industry, it's pretty easy to see what your peers have done and what's worked and what hasn't worked. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. because these are big visible projects, oftentimes. So oftentimes, a combination of past projects with inside the company, plus knowledge of what your what's what your peers have done, there will be people who will know what's happened in other companies and what their experiences were that you can bring into this as well. This is an important point. There are sort of three types of learning that can go on. One, if you're the decision maker, you learn from your own past experience. Two, and, and this is in decreasing order of what gets used, you learn from your own past experience. Then you can learn from the company that you're working for or the organization that you're working for's past experience. And then the step that people rarely take is learning from others' experience. And there's an awful lot of information there. And I haven't been presented with a problem where I couldn't come up with a reference class. With the inside view vanquished, the team turned their attention to a bias known as anchoring. For example, during the annual budget process, the numbers for next year typically end up looking pretty much like this year's plus or minus a few percent. So how can companies overcome anchoring in order to allocate capital more quickly and effectively? Again, leading us off is Dan Lavallo. Anchoring was something developed by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, and it refers to the tendency to anchor on any number given. One of the best examples of it was people were asked to estimate Gandhi's age at death. And uh, this may be imprecise, but one group was given a, an age of like 10, and another was given an age of 140. And these are obviously completely ridiculous numbers, but they strongly impacted the predicted age of death. Now, if something that you know is ridiculous impacts your forecasts, then imagine how much more salient 
last year's budget is. And we call this endowed anchoring. So you're endowed with this anchor, which is what you did last year. So you're anchored to that in psychological ways. First off, another example that I think is interesting where we've, you take a group of executives in a room, split them into two, you give one group a set of opportunities for different resource allocation for the coming year and what the payoffs would be, et cetera. And that's all you give them. The second group, you give them that exactly the same information, plus you give them the information about how the resources were allocated across units the prior year, right? And what you find is the answer is very different between the two groups, just because that second group automatically assumes this bias, either, you know, maybe last year's was right or, or whatever reason, but there is sort of a innate push towards what happened last year. And that is a major problem that has to be overcome in organizations. And so organizations typically start with last year and then sort of move up or down incrementally. Rarely do they start from scratch and think through what's the best place to allocate our resources. Clearly there's an unconscious bias that's going on with anchoring, but then there might also be reasons why budgets don't change year to year. I'd imagine it's quite disruptive to reallocate people and capital dramatically Mm -hmm. um, on a year to year basis. How have you seen companies that have overcome the anchoring bias actually then overcome some of those other challenges associated with significant reallocation. I might challenge your premise about how difficult it is to, to, to do that. I think that that's an excuse oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that you're going to change every year a lot, mm-hmm. okay, across different, say, business units, right? So in other words, if one business unit is, is on the upswing and it needs more resources, that's probably going to be the same for a couple of years versus a sure. uh, business unit which is more mature so or whatever. I, I don't think it's a good excuse to say it's hard to do it, right? Because okay. you need to do it at some point or another sure. and better to do it sooner rather than later. Sure. With respect to projects, though, it is much easier, right? Because you typically have resources that you can do. And so, for example, what some of the oil companies do is they will just do a forced ranking, right, of all the different projects, projects right? And then they can sort of pick the projects, you know, initially, you know, do it mechanically and pick the projects which have the highest returns regardless, and you might make some modifications later on. But that type of a technique, and you can do it for business units as well, where you start out with something which is a forced ranking, which Mm -hmm. ignores history, is entirely Mm forward-looking, and therefore your starting point in the discussion is an allocation which is very different sometimes than what you did last year. And then you might sort of modify it a little bit, but at least you've got a starting point which pushes you away from the anchor of last year. So the only way to fight an anchor is with a new anchor. anchor. You know, this is a little bit like how you form a reference class and a little bit like how you do a regression. Pick some of the biggest indicators. So in other words, let's say you're a consumer goods company and you've got a store in Hong Kong, Mm -hmm. right? You might look at the growth of the the entire sector, the growth in Hong Kong, and the growth of your product line, right? And just, this is a quick and dirty thing. It doesn't have to be fundamentally detailed. So you you take these attributes and you run a quick prediction, you know, quick regression model, and predict what you think the sales would be in the Hong Kong store for this product line. 
right? And then you're going to compare that to what your inside view, which, which means focusing on your own plans and actions, and last year's budget to set up a different anchor. The other thing you have to overcome, though, is the internal dynamics or politics of the organization, sure. right? So, for example, one technique people will use is to try to, you know, talk to everyone who's going to be in a meeting before the meeting to get them to buy in. Right. So there's no debate at the meeting, right? So they get their point of view. Uh, or, you know, people will go around the process directly to the CEO right. uh, to sort of say, well, you know, I really need this resources, you know, because the person knows that they're not going to be getting them because they're going to go somewhere else otherwise. So you really have to be much more strict about the processes that you go through to overcome those internal dynamics that will work against the more fact-based objective reallocation. Because people's prestige, their view of how they perceive in the organization are all at stake here. And they're not often looking at it from the perspective of the whole company. Mm -hmm. So they're gonna try to move things back to where they had them often cases, particularly sure. those who got a lot of resources. So you have to make specific steps to prevent that from happening. And so does that lend itself more, Tim, to an annual budget process or one where it happens more regularly? Because you know, like, is there a way to lower the stakes so that then there's not as much of that pressure to try and save your resources? We did some research and we found that when companies did their strategic planning at the beginning of the year, they put together a three to yep. five year forecast, sure. right? The first year of that forecast ideally should be the, the budget for the next year. Right. But what we found was that when companies actually got around to budget time, they did the strategic plan in June or whatever, they do the budget in October, that the budget reverted back to the prior year's allocation, even though in their strategic plan, they were gonna have a big reallocation, in, right. right? So one thing, for example, you can do is be more precise or re require that you, know, that you don't make changes from that three to five year plan to the next year's budget through the process, right? Another thing you can do to give you more flexibility during the course of the year is to not allocate all of the resources to keep during some, that. Hold some back. So hold some back, either for the CEO or for the, uh, say, the investment committee or whatever or, you know, body makes those decisions, so that as things come along, you can allocate new resources. And the other thing you need to do as well is you need to make sure that even if you did allocate something to a project, if you're not going to start spending the money until next September, that when September comes around, you actually revisit and say, do we still want to spend it? So you might take money back as well. Sure, sure. So you might have a budget, but it's not set in stone. You can add pieces in some cases and take it away as you gain more information. And next, the team turned their attention to the infamous sunk cost fallacy. The bias that leads us to continue with an activity based on the time and money we've already put into it, as opposed to taking a clear-eyed view of the prospects. As we'll hear, the sunk cost fallacy often gets in the way of decisions to close projects that should have been ended years ago, or indeed to divest perennially underperforming business units. Here's Dan Lavallo to start the discussion. In some uh, research we did, we looked at projects that were both unprofitable and cash needy. So in other words, their sales growth couldn't sustain the investment. 
And you would think that somebody would kill them at some point. But the situation is we, those projects, uh, those business units, had uh, an 80% chance of surviving 10 years. This is really common, about as common as you get. And part of the difficulty, you know, there's a lot of um, emotion tied to firing people. And people don't want to do it. So they don't, and these things tend to keep living. And if people don't have processes in place, it's very unlikely to happen. Some other research, just as this applies to business units, for example, we found that companies often would not divest a business unit until like a year or so after people started talking about it in the press already. You know, rule of thumb seems to be that it takes about two years after a company starts to have the conversation before they actually get around to do anything about it. Or they come into the mode that, oh, we'll, we'll fix this thing before we sell it, which never happens, of course. And you lose a lot of value over those two years by waiting. So uh, in addition to projects, uh, whole business units in divesting or pruning the portfolio is also uh, something that companies need to be better at in order to, uh, to maximize the value creation. In the U.S. economy, for standalone companies, that's about 30% of the companies that have at least one business segment that's not dying when it should. And for multi-business unit companies, uh, that's about 43% of the companies. So it's a ubiquitous problem. The reason that they fall into this trap is typically the sunk cost fallacy. We've invested all this capital uh, and time and energy into it, so let's keep it going, right? Which we all know is, is, does not make any sense at all. So you need to sort of have processes to eliminate that. And one approach is something that, some, that we sometimes call stage gating, which is that every time you want to spend more money on a project at a certain phase of that project's life to move on to the next phase, you have to go back and get permission to keep it going. There's not the automatic presumption that once a project gets started, it will go to completion. The presumption is at certain milestones that are predefined you know, ahead of time, you, a, you have a, to get permission to keep going with the project. And there's a point in there, you have to define these milestones in advance or else you're gonna get slippage and you're gonna fall into the sunk cost fallacy. And you have to have somebody uh, who's in charge that's going to actually stop things if you don't meet those milestones. One of your suggested remedies is something that you call the burden of proof. Can you say a little bit more about that? Oh, well, the burden of proof idea is the idea that instead of making the case for divesting, you have to change it to why should we keep this business? You obviously can't do it for the whole company every year. One approach is to say five, ten percent of the big projects or units Every year, you ask that question, why should we hold on to mm -hmm. this particular unit or why should we keep pursuing this particular project as a way of changing the, the sequence around so that if you can't prove the case that you absolutely need to keep it, then the assumption is, okay, we're going to get rid of it. You talked a little bit about um, this notion in your article of categorizing business investments. In this case, what you need to do is you make sure that every unit or every investment right, is put into one of three or more categories. Mm -hmm. right? There are those businesses or things that we want to accelerate. There are those that we want to maintain or defend. And then there are those that we need to dispose. And you sort of force yourself to sort of categorize each business 
into one of those so that once again, if you can't make the case for maintaining or accelerating a project or, or a business, then it sort of automatically goes into the dispose category. Once again, using some criteria that you know you don't let the processes get in the way of. One thing that's absolutely important, this won't happen if it doesn't come from the top. It simply won't happen. So the CEO has to make a call and this has to be driven from the top. And finally, in this episode, from value-destroying projects that refuse to die to value-creating projects that don't get the investment they need because, well, they're not very glamorous. What can executives do to ensure that the allure of glamour projects doesn't get in the way of optimal resource allocation? Dan Lavallo starts this segment with a good example. My favorite example is when you've got a big oil field. Yes. There are a number of things that have to be done. And one of them is drilling for new resources, oil or gas. And that's exciting. Now, there's another thing that has to be done in a big oil field. And that's maintenance. You've got to maintain the wells. You've got to make sure that nothing untoward happens. Mm -hmm. But not so glamorous. Frequently, those two necessary activities are completely separated. Okay. And the way to go forward in the company is to be a great explorer, not so much great maintenance. So that creates a problem and has created some issues that, that we all know about. This kind of problem isn't just limited to my favorite example in oil and gas. Tim can talk a bit about how this generalizes to many more types of projects. When companies typically evaluate either projects, like say maintenance projects, or a performance of a business unit, mm -hmm. right? They typically make the assumption that if they don't make an investment, that things will go along business as usual. And therefore they end up with the assumption that let's say a maintenance project has a zero present value, okay? Or a business unit's value is, you know, steady state kind of thing. The reality is in many of these cases, if you don't make the right decisions and make the right investments, either that project or that unit will decline in performance, mm -hmm. right? But it's often not acceptable to show a base case, which is a decline. So the base case is almost always steady. a steady state. And therefore the investments that keep it at steady state don't show up as creating any value. And that's really the source of a lot of the issue with respect to the focusing on the new versus the maintenance or the old, if you, if you will, in, in some situations. And that's a mindset that has to change. So what are some of the tips and tricks that you'd offer our listeners in terms of better valuing these maintenance approaches? One of the techniques is to make sure that different parts of the organizations aren't necessarily operating in silos so that decisions are made where people who are doing maintenance things understand what's going on with the faster growing right. businesses and vice versa so mm -hmm. people can understand more what it's all about. And one of the mechanisms from the oil and gas example earlier is really 
quite simple and I think somewhat ingenious, which is the committees in most oil and gas companies, there'll be an exploration committee and a maintenance committee okay. and different people oversee those. And this leads to underinvestment maintenance because there are more senior people on the exploration committee, et cetera. So what one company did, and this company's had a great safety record, is have overlapping committee members. This allowed them to more easily balance out investments in maintenance and exploration because the committee members that overlapped that were on the exploration committee but also sat on the maintenance committee could tell the needs of maintenance and had an easier way to argue to the leader of the field, you know, they really need this money. And overlapping committees are a way to get more information to the top in a more direct manner. Another is, once again, the CEO has to take the lead in saying, we're no longer going to accept the base case being business as usual. There are base cases where the business is declining or the project is going to destroy some value because we're not spending enough money on maintenance, for example. It is essential to sort of have that kind of mindset built into the organization where we're always looking at what would really happen if we didn't spend this money. How do you tie this to the depreciation charges that companies are taking on their capital base? Yeah, depreciation is a very crude metric, but sometimes it can be very useful. If yeah. you're spending less than depreciation, you might want to be worried. Right. If you're spending much more but not growing, you want to be worried as well. You know, it's a starting point maybe. It's not sufficient. You know, really need to look at the business sort of much more bottoms up to make the right decisions. Once again, you don't want to be anchored in the past, right? You want to be thinking about the future. You know, the people who are closest to those assets will know what needs to get done or when something needs to get done and that you need to have a mechanism where you can hear their voices so that you can take that into consideration as you're making your investment decisions. Any other suggestions for how executive teams can avoid this issue? One of the ways is to take personality out of the system. So one company, when people are proposing projects, they're allowed to propose projects, let's say the head of the BU or division. They propose the projects and they put them in writing. And when the allocation decision is made, they're not in the room. The CEO, the CFO and the head of technology make the decision without anyone else. Wow. And so you don't get the head of the most glamorous division or the head of the biggest division or somebody who's been there longest arguing for their project face to face. And that really makes a big push toward objectivity. And I would recommend, and it's not going to happen, but I would recommend that to all companies. So there you have it. A hatful of ideas for overcoming cognitive bias. From Tim Kohler, Dan Lavallo, and Inside the Strategy Room podcast host, Sean Brown. If you're hungry for more, please do subscribe to the series, which you'll find in all the same places that you find the McKinsey podcast, and check out the excellent series of articles entitled Bias Busters, which you can find on mckinsey.com 
or the McKinsey Insights app. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.